Well, if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. For the last four weeks, we've been focusing on what the Bible says about spiritual warfare. The fact is, we are in an all-out war. And regardless of who you are, regardless of what you believe, whether you like it or not, you are involved in this war. Now, thus far, we, we've talked about our enemy, the devil, Satan, whatever you want to call him, and his army of fallen angels called demons. And their desire is to kill you, steal from you, and to destroy you. And if you don't understand who he is and what he wants to do, he already has an advantage over you. We've discovered his strategy. He attacks our mind with lies. He attacks our flesh by tempting us to fulfill legitimate desires in illegitimate ways. He attacks our pride with, or our will with pride, and he attacks our, our body with suffering. Last week, we began to focus on how we fight against him, how we arm ourselves for battle. And we discovered that the very first thing that we put on as we prepare for battle is the belt of truth, the absolute standard by which all things are measured and all things are judged. Now, in our culture today, there are some, as a matter of fact, there are many that try to tell us that truth is arbitrary, but you need to understand that truth is truth. Regardless of what you feel, regardless of what you think, even regardless of what the facts in front of you may say, the truth is always the truth. And, and we discovered that, that God is the source of truth. Since he is the creator of all, he is the originator of all, everything comes from him. He is the one who determines truth. So we must first put on truth or we will be swayed by the opinions, the ideas, the philosophies, and, and even the religious thoughts that pop up in each and every generation. Next, we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, we discovered that righteousness is the standard that God requires that, that pleases him. Truth gives us God's standard. Righteousness is operating in light of that standard. We discovered that we are made righteous through Jesus Christ. He makes us righteous as he takes his righteousness and places it into our account. But we also discovered that we are to live righteous lives because of the indwelling Christ living in us. And then we are to put on our feet the gospel of peace. And, and though we need to share the gospel, every one of us are supposed to share the gospel. That's not what this is talking about. This is the peace that comes to us from experiencing the gospel. You see, when, when we've discovered the gospel, when we've experienced the gospel, the gospel will give us sure footing when the whole world is shaking around us, when, when storms are raging and everything that can go wrong is going wrong in our life. But this morning, I want us to look at these last three pieces of armor that, that God gives us that we're to put on. And, and so let's read in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10 again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and, and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but, but this dark, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, 
put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kind of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the saints. Now, the last three pieces of armor that God gives us are the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, let's first look at the shield of faith. And notice what Paul says about the shield. He says that it can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Not some of them, not most of them, but, but the shield of faith is able to extinguish all the flaming arrows that the evil one throws at us. Now, a, a Roman soldier's shield normally measured about two and a half feet across by about four and a half to five feet long. It was normally made of wood, and then it was covered with treated leather. And that treated leather would, would, would extinguish, would put out the flame of a flaming arrow that came from the enemy. When positioned correctly, the shield would cover the, the entire soldier from, from foot to toe, from head to foot. Remember the intro video when the Spartans are, are sitting there under their shields and those thousands upon thousands of arrows are raining on them and yet they are completely safe under the protection of their shield. That's what faith does. You see, faith helps us stand firm, protected and secure when the enemy's arrows are raining down on us. But what is faith? Well, let me tell you, first of all, what faith is not. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not a positive mental attitude. Faith is not some magic formula or some warm, fuzzy emotion. Here's what the Bible says faith is. It's found in Hebrews 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. You see, the Bible says that faith is a settled confidence that what God says is true, even when we don't see it. In other words, regardless of what you see, regardless of what you feel, you believe. And now listen to what some people have said about faith. I love what Tony Evans said. He said, faith is acting as if something is so, even when it appears not to be so, in order that it might be shown to be so, simply because God said so. I like that. A.W. Tozier said, faith is seeing the invisible, not the non-existent. George Mueller, a great man of faith, said, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. So let me give you my definition. Faith is confident obedience and trust in God and His Word in spite of our circumstances, 
and in spite of our consequences. Now, don't miss that. Faith is obedience and faith is trust. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You see, faith encompasses both those things. It is trusting to the point of obeying. And faith always, listen, faith always requires action. It is believing so strongly that what God says is true, that you're willing to act on it, that you're willing to stake your life on it. We say that we believe God can meet our needs. Well, do we believe it so strongly that we are willing to give obediently? We say that that God is able to sustain us in the darkest valleys. Well, if we do, don't we think it's time to quit whining and start shining when we're going through these dark valleys? We say that heaven, we believe, we have faith that, that heaven is far better than anything down here. Well, if we really have faith in that, isn't it time that we start living that way? You see, faith is action. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is acting regardless of how you feel. Listen very carefully. This is important. You can feel faithless. You can feel as if you have absolutely no faith and yet be filled with faith. Because faith has nothing to do with how you feel. Faith has everything to do with how you act. And as you walk through Hebrews chapter 11, that that hall of fame of faith, you see that very clearly. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah built. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Moses refused. And he left. By faith, the people of Israel marched. By faith, Rahab welcomed. And the list goes on and on. Now to understand, this shield of faith that extinguishes the flaming arrows of the enemy, this isn't saving faith. This is living faith. This is sustaining faith. This is mountain-moving faith. I I am convinced that, that all of our fears, all of our doubts, all of our worries are a direct result of a lack of faith. You see, faith causes us to step out of the boat. Faith causes us to step into the lion's den. Faith causes us to step into the fiery furnace and cry out, My God is able to deliver me. Do you have that kind of faith? I mean, do you really have that kind of faith? Now listen, God plants that kind of faith in each and every one of us who are believers. But he plants it as a seed. And as that seed is watered and nourished, it grows, it matures, it develops. And that seed of faith becomes a large plant. And so our faith grows. The disciples realized that that they needed more faith. That's why they cried out to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. So how do we get to that point? How do we get to that point where we trust God to do what seems impossible and we obey Him regardless of the outcome? How do we grow our 
faith, how do we increase our faith? Well, let, let me give you several things quickly. First of all, you ask him. That's what the disciples did. They simply said, Lord, increase our faith. If you want more faith, you want your faith to grow, to mature, to develop, ask God. Second thing, you need to read faith stories. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I love what D.L. Moody said. He said, I prayed for faith and thought that someday it would come down and strike me like lightning. But faith didn't seem to come. One day I read in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I had up to that time closed my Bible and prayed for faith. Now I opened my Bible, began to study, and my faith has been growing ever since. You see, when you begin to read the stories of the people in the word of God who acted on faith, and you recognize that the God they served is the same God that we serve, it will help increase our faith. Next thing you need to do is you need to hang around people of faith. If you want your faith to grow, you don't hang around doubters and skeptics and people that always are playing it safe. If you want your faith to grow, you begin to hang out with people who are living a life of incredible faith because obviously they're living it, they're fleshing it out, and you learn from them. And finally, if you want your faith to grow, you take God-directed risk. God-directed risk. Remember, faith doesn't make sense. That's why it's faith. Remember Peter stepping out of the boat? Jesus said, come on. Peter stepped out of the boat. It was a God-directed risk. Do you remember that game we used to play as children, that, that trust game where you would stand there and you would fall back into someone's arms and hoping they weren't playing a joke on you, you were hoping they were going to catch you? That's what faith is. We can't see what is behind us, but we're trusting that God is going to catch us and carry us and sustain us. So how's your faith? Do you have faith that's going to, to get you through the difficult times? Do you have faith that's going to help sustain you when the flaming arrows of the enemy are falling down upon you? Let me finish this section with a verse. 1 John 5, verse 4. It says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. You're never going to defeat the enemy without a growing, vibrant faith. So it's the shield of faith. The, the next thing that we're supposed to put on is the helmet of salvation. Now, a Roman, helmet's, a Roman soldier's helmet was very strong. About the only thing that could crack the Roman soldier's helmet was an axe or a very heavy sword. But if you didn't have your helmet on, any blow to the head could be a fatal blow. So it was foolish to go into battle without wearing your helmet. Now, some of you may be saying, well, I don't need to worry about this because I've already been saved. Or you may be saying, well, I, I, I do need to do this. I need to get saved. And and understand, if you've never been saved, you need to get saved. But that's not what this is talking about right here. This isn't talking about the helmet of salvation for salvation because Paul is talking to believers. You see, Paul is not saying you need to get saved because these people were already saved. He was saying you need to understand the full scope 
of your salvation. You see, at the core of many of our problems is a lack of understanding of our salvation. And if we don't fully understand the scope of our salvation, it will affect the way we feel, the way we think, the way we live, and and even the way we face death. Without the helmet of salvation protecting our minds, we will discover that we are living in misery, never experiencing the joy of our salvation. And if we're not careful, we may even mislead others and cause them to miss heaven altogether. I've met people when I've asked them the question, are you saved? They've said things like this, well, I hope so. Or, yes, I've been saved many times. And I've heard both of those answers. One person has never experienced that settled confidence that comes when they know their sins have been forgiven. The other person has the idea that that every time they sin, every time they mess up, every time they blow it, they are in danger of spiraling to hell again. And both of those are wrong. And many people live that way with doubts and fears. Then I'm a doubter. I wish I weren't. But that's the way I'm wired. I'm a doubter. And and I've doubted my salvation often in my spiritual journey. When I would look in the mirror and I would look at myself, I just didn't measure up to what I wanted to be for God's glory. And as I looked in the mirror, I felt that I didn't measure up to what God wanted me to be. I would read passages in the Bible that the old is gone and everything has become new. And and I would go, you know, there's still a lot of old here, it looks like. there's, There's some things that just haven't yet, at least as I look, become new. And, And I would doubt my salvation. Now hear me. As I was going through these doubts, I was saved. But I didn't understand the full scope of my salvation because I didn't have the helmet of salvation protecting my mind. I was living without the confidence that God wanted me to have in my salvation. Now, you need to understand that the New Testament speaks of salvation in three dimensions. It speaks of the past, the the present, and the future. I have been saved. I am being saved. And I will be saved. Let's look first at the past. You see, the Bible says that if I am a Christian, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, convinces us of our sin, and we repent of that sin and place our faith in Jesus, we are saved. Period. End of story. Nothing can ever change that. Let me say that again. When we come under the convicting, convincing power of the Holy Spirit that we are a sinner in need of a Savior, and we repent, we place our faith in Jesus, Jesus saves us. He changes us. He makes us a brand new person. Now, every part of that phrase I said is important. I want you to look at two verses. Second Corinthians 7 verse 10 says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation. Let me say that again. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to what? 
that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now let's just unpack these verses for just a moment. Godly sorrow. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict us of sin and of righteousness and the judgment to come. The Holy Spirit convicts us bringing godly sorrow. In other words, you see your need. Salvation can never occur until you see your need to be saved. As long as you are self-sufficient, as long as you feel feel like you are good, You are never going to be saved. It is not until you recognize your utter inability to save yourself that you will be on the road to being saved. That's why Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call the sinners to repentance. So godly sorrow, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, that's the first step in salvation. The second step is repent. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, we change our minds about sin. We no longer want to live under its control. We no longer want to be our own God. We're tired of playing God and we cry out to God for help. The first step, the Holy Spirit convicts. The second step, we respond by saying, I don't want to live controlled by sin Anymore. That's when we're able to see what God offers us through Jesus. God offers us salvation through grace. Now, grace is undeserved love. Grace is the act whereby Jesus died on the cross in our place. Jesus died for me. That's grace. And so God does his part. He convicts us bringing godly sorrow. We respond by repenting. God does his part. He gives us grace through the death of his son. And then notice what it says. We do our part by receiving grace through faith. And so there's godly sorrow, the Holy Spirit's conviction. There is repentance. I don't want that anymore. There is God's grace The realization that Jesus did what we can't do, he paid for our sin, and we receive that through faith. Listen, if you've come under the conviction of your sin, you've humbled yourself before God, and you've said, I don't want to live controlled by sin anymore. You've realized that it was Jesus' death and Jesus' death alone that can save you. And you have humbly, by faith, received his gift. You are saved. And nothing and no one can ever change that. That's why grace is so amazing. It is settled. It is secure. What Jesus did on the cross is a finished work. And when we come to that point where the Holy Spirit convicts and we repent and we discover God's grace and by faith we receive it, the Bible says that we're born again. We're made new. Supernaturally. His spirit comes to live and guide in us. And we become a child of God. That's salvation past. That's settled. 
But then there's salvation present. Now, here's what I've discovered. In, in my salvation journey, I discovered that it wasn't long after being born again that I discovered there was some old stuff still floating around. I was made new, and yet at the same time, there at least seemed to be, on the surface, a whole lot of old. I mean, there were thoughts coming into my mind that I didn't want, but they were there nevertheless. There were things that I I fell to occasionally that, man, I didn't want to fall to them, but I did. And and I was doing those old things. And, and, And understand, unless you understand that when you come to Jesus, he forgives you totally and completely, you're going to struggle with doubting your salvation. But you also need to understand that when God saved you, When you accepted him as your savior, as you received him as your Lord, he began a good work in you. He started a work. Listen to what it says in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Those verses tell us that that the present act of salvation is a process. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, but we are being saved from the power of sin as the Holy Spirit controls more and more and more of our life. Understand, you will never receive more of the Holy Spirit than you already have. But what can happen is you can be surrendered more to his control than you are right now. And we need to surrender ourselves completely and totally to him. And as we do that, he is working in us, giving us both the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And so as we're going through this life, we're in the process of having victory over sin. You see, if you've been a Christian for for five years, for 10 years, for 15 years, for 25 years, and and you're still at the same place you were when you got saved, man, it's time for you to get off go and run. God expects you to grow. I mean, little babies are precious, aren't they? But if we've ever had a little baby, we all know that we want our little babies to grow up. And mature and develop and, and become strong and healthy and, and learn how to feed themselves and learn how to go to the bathroom so they don't have to be changed. You, you know, those kind of things. And God wants us to grow and he wants us to mature in our faith. So there's salvation past because of God's grace revealed on the cross. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. There's salvation present. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit and my surrendering to His control, I am being saved from the power of sin in my life. But then there is salvation future. You see, this world isn't all we have to look forward to. Paul talked about this in 1 Thessalonians 5. He said this. He said, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, did you get that? He said the hope of salvation 
Now, when you hope for something, you haven't already experienced it fully. You're waiting to experience it fully. You have hope of what you are going to experience. And that's what Paul said. He said, we're putting on the hope of the helmet of salvation. Because there is something that we have to look forward to that we have not yet experienced. He said it a little bit different in Romans 13, verse 11. He said, and do this understanding the present time. The hours come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Did you hear that? Our salvation is nearer. Now, is he saying, well, I mean, pretty soon we're going to get saved? No. He's talking to believers who have already experienced the salvation of sin's penalty. They are in the process of experiencing salvation from sin's power. But there's coming a day when this old evil world that is opposed to everything that we love as believers is going to be destroyed. And we will experience the hope of our salvation. We will be free from the very presence of sin. And I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to that day. I'm hoping for that day because understand, my Lord gave me a new nature And yet he gave me this new nature encapsulated in flesh, surrounded by a world that is opposed to the things of God. And it is difficult here. One day we're going to get a new body that is not this old sinful fleshly body. And one day this world is going to pass away and we're going to be in a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. And one day the devil and the demons that attack us and tempt us are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And we won't have to deal with them anymore. See the shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. But then he says, finally, we need to put on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, there are two types of swords that we discover in the New Testament. The first one was a long sword, about three feet long. But the second one was a shorter sword, about the size of a long dagger, 18 inches to 24 inches long. It was used in hand-to-hand combat. When the enemy was in your grill, in your face, attacking you up close, this is the weapon that you would use. Now, notice what he says here. He said, our sword is the sword of the Spirit. In other words... The sword that we are to use comes from the Spirit of God. It is His. It originates with Him. And then notice what he says. He says the sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God. Now here's what you need to understand. I'm going to try to do this quickly. There are three words in the New Testament that are translated word. The first word is grafe. It is typically translated writing or scripture. It refers to the actual words of scripture. The printed word. This is the graphe. This is the printed word of God. It is the word of God in written form. The 66 books that God has given us that we call the Bible. Now let me give you some verses where that word is used. John 5 verse 39 says, You diligently study The scriptures, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify of me. That word scripture is the Greek word graphe. 
2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. That word, Scripture, is the word graphe, the printed word of God. 2 Peter 1.20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by a prophet's own interpretation. That word, Scripture. It is the Greek word graphe, the written Word. We need to understand that there is something special about the written Word of God. It is a unique book. It is a divine book given to us by God. And we need to honor this book. When I went on my very first mission trip to Russia, I was preaching to a group of pastors who had been imprisoned under communist rule. And then I was doing a revival at a college campus. And, and when I was there, I was standing on the floor, kind of like we have right here. And, and later on, I was going to be speaking up on a platform like we have here. And as I was standing down there talking to some people, I put my Bible on the platform. One of the Russians came up to me and said, you need to pick that up. Because these Russian believers will be offended by that. Because they don't think your, your Bible should ever touch the ground. Now, now... You know, is there anything in the Bible that says that? No. But what it does tell us is these people respected the Word of God. Most of us in here have a Bible or Bible sitting around our home. And yet, some of us probably never open them up. We never read them. We've never systematically studied them. We've never taken time to memorize them. You need to understand that a Bible sitting around your house is never going to do you any good. The Bible is not a good luck charm. You need to understand that. Graphe. But that's not the word that is used here in this passage. Now the second word in the Greek that is translated word is the word logos. Logos refers to the message of the word. The graphe refers to the printed word. The logos refers to the message that the word gives. It is the revelation of God's truth. It is more than just words on a page. It is the message behind the word. The word logos is the word used in Hebrews 4. Listen to this. For the word of God is living, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word for the word there is logos. The message of the Word is powerful. The message is living. The message is active. The message is able to judge our thoughts and our attitudes. But it's also the Word used in John chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. You see, Jesus embodies God's message. He is the Logos. He is the message of God. He is the revelation of God. He reveals who God is. And so the Logos is the message behind the Word. Now, now hear me. If I have a Bible, and I even pick it up and read it occasionally, but I never dig into it to discover its message, it's never going to do me any good. I've got to get to the message of the Word. What is the word saying, the Logos? But this isn't the word used in Ephesians chapter 6. 
The word used in Ephesians chapter 6 is rima. That word literally means in the Greek, uttered or spoken. It refers to the word of God spoken, or, or let me say it this way, the word of God applied to our lives. Now, let me give you a couple of verses. First Peter 1, but the word of the Lord stands forever, the rima. And this is the word that was what? That was preached to you. So it is the word uttered, the word proclaimed. Romans 10 verse 17, consequently faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Word, rima. The message is heard through the rima of God, the spoken word of God. It is God speaking to us through his word. You see, God using his written word to speak directly to you. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been reading the Bible before? And all of a sudden, it just seemed like something just jumped off the page at you. I mean, it was almost like it was bold. It was highlighted. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, it's happened to me. And as I read that passage of Scripture, it's as if... God is giving me a message that I need to hear specifically and clearly from Him. It's the Word of God spoken to us, but it's also taking the Word and speaking it as the promises and truths of God to our enemy. This is what Tony Evans said. I want you to hear this. The Rema is the declaration of the Logos... That you get from the graphe. You read the graphe. So you can understand the logos. So you can use the rima. And so you see the rima is God's taking his word. Given to us. And then us turning around. And using it in battle. So how does the rima word help us today? Let me give you three things and then we're closing. First is God speaking to us directly on a subject. That we can use against our enemy. That's what. Jesus did when he was in the wilderness, right? Satan came and said, do this. And what did Jesus do? Jesus says, it is written. He uttered, he spoke the word of God back to his enemy. Satan said, do this. And Jesus said, it is written. He spoke the direct word to the enemy to defeat the enemy. Satan said, do this. And Jesus said, it is written. It is a specific word in a specific situation that God gives us to defeat the enemy. Secondly, I believe that it is God speaking through his word to encourage us and guide us. There are times that when we're reading the word and as, as we said, the word seems to jump off the page and, and it speaks to a specific need in our life at that time. And God's speaking truth to us. And finally, it's taking God's word and applying it to specific situations in our life. But understand, the remote word always has to be in alignment with the written word. Did you hear me? Because here's the problem. There are some groups of Christians today that, that say that God gives rema words, new words through prophets. God doesn't need to give us a new word. Because every word you need is found in this word. And we need to learn to apply it. 
And so we put on the shield of faith that is able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. We, we pick up the helmet of salvation and put it on to protect our mind, understanding that our salvation is secure. And God is working in us, doing something in us as we have more and more victory over sin. But praise God, this world isn't the end. We've got something else to look forward to. And then we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as we get into the printed Word, and we begin to study it, and we discover the the message behind the Word, the Logos. Then God takes it, and it becomes a declared Word as we use it to defeat the enemy. God wants you to experience victory. God doesn't want you to live in defeat. The question is, what are you going to do? Here's what I know. You're never going to have victory apart from the armor of God. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet fitted with the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword that comes from the Spirit, which is the declared Word of God. And when we take up that and use it against the enemy, He'll give us victory. I want you to bow your head. And I imagine each and every one of us here who are Christ followers today can look at different parts of this armor and we can say, this is what I need. I need more faith. I need need to rest in the assurance of my salvation. I, I need... I need to get so deep into the Word of God that I can hear God speaking to me and learn how to apply, declare God's Word as I am fighting in this battle. I I don't know what it is that you need, but, but let me encourage you to make a commitment right now to put on the full armor of God. Now, there are others of us here today who have never taken that first step. You've never truly been saved. And when we talked about the convicting power of the Holy Spirit as the first step, you've never experienced that conviction, perhaps. We said you must repent, and you say, I've never turned from sin. I've never said, I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to be under sin's control. Maybe you haven't discovered that it is by grace. There's nothing you can do to deserve salvation, work for your salvation, or earn your salvation. It is all a finished work of Christ on the cross that you receive by faith. And so if you're here and you've never been saved, I want to invite you this morning to let Jesus do a work in your life that will change your life today, will change your history tomorrow. So if you know that you need Him, that's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. The question is, are you willing to repent and trust Christ alone to save you? If you are, You can pray this prayer. Dear God, please forgive me. I know I'm a sinner. I don't want to live controlled by sin anymore. I want you to change me. I know you died for me. You rose from the dead. I know there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. I'm trusting you alone. I'm giving my life to you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Amen.